Star Trek has never been just one thing. While we tend to think we know what Star Trek is now, its worldview, themes, and approach to storytelling, as well as its backstory, and even characterizations, all came together over time and were shepherded by diverse voices, including those of the fans after the 60s series ended. The ideas we associate with Trek are flexible, shifting and changing over time, depending on who was writing it, and even who was watching. In this sense, then, Star Trek itself is a mirror universe. Or to put it another way, Star Trek's real mirror universe is our universe. In this podcast, we'll be gazing into the mirror that is Trek, and focusing on how that reflection can shift and change. As Garrick once said, Star Trek, like beauty, is in the eye of the beholder. In 2022, there was an enormous amount of new Star Trek. I watched almost none of it. What I did do was reread a novel from more than 20 years ago about, and sort of by, Garrick. And as soon as I did, I begged Adam to read it too. A Stitch in Time was written by Andrew J. Robinson, who played Garrick on Deep Space Nine. It's an unusually personal novel, alternating between Garrick's experiences as a young man his time on Deep Space Nine, and his attempts to rebuild Cardassia after the Dominion War. Deep Space Nine, the series, often deliberately eschewed or obscured any attempt to explain Garrick's real backstory, beyond some hints. But this novel, at least on one reading, sets out Garrick's history and in so doing tries to explain who he really is. It's a fascinating, ambitious novel, and today we're going to discuss it. Welcome back to the Mirror Universe podcast. I'm Douglas McDonald Norman. Why are we doing an episode on A Stitch in Time now, in this, the year of our Lord 2022? The answer is because I really, really love this novel. I loved it as much reading it now, by which I mean a few months ago, as I did when I first read it 20 years ago. And I wanted to devote this platform that I have to explaining why I love it so much. That's the first reason. The second reason is because we have been trying to record an episode on A Stitch in Time for months. We have overcome adversity. We have upcome illness. Upcome? We have overcome illness. We have gone through so much trying to record this episode. And the more obstacles that were placed in our way, the more I stubbornly decided to press on, despite the universe itself bending to show that it couldn't be done. (laughs) Adam, why are we doing an episode on A Stitch in Time now, in this, the year of our Lord 2022? Um, (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, it was obviously because you wanted to read it so badly. But I mean, I I had been, uh, I knew knew of it, and I know it had often been uh, listed as the best uh, Star Trek spin-off novel. Um, I'm not actually sure I 100% agree with that, uh, and we'll probably get into that, but it is very good. Uh, agree with it being the best, that is. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, it's it's really good. I might almost say surprisingly good, no offense to Andrew Robinson, um, but um, it, it's... Uh, and it actually turned out to have... Uh, qu- I would, didn't know this going in, of course, but it did turn out to have a surprising amount of relevance to our current... Uh, our current uh, time and place um which is something that's often true of star trek anyway but uh it it, in specifically it it does deal with some stuff that uh reflects the real world it also reflects trek where it is uh because of course um 
Deep Space Nine was kind of the uh, end cap for Trek in a re in a very real way for many years. Um, of course, you know, Voyager did technically extend temporally past the ending of Deep Space Nine, but it was all in the Delta Quadrant, so it didn't really affect the, you know, political goings on back in the Alpha Quadrant. And of course, Enterprise was a prequel. Everything was prequels for a while. Um, so it is it it's it's sort of a glimpse, however non canonical, of uh, what happened after. Um, after uh, the end of Deep Space Nine, which was uh, very well done, very good, and I think it keeps very well with what is suggested by the end of Deep Space Nine. Uh, it doesn't sort of dash off in another direction. Um, I, I mean, if, if I have a singular complaint conceptually with it, it is the fact that it is giving us Garrick's backstory, which uh, from early on, I would say it was almost by design <laughs> that we were never supposed to have Garrick's backstory. Uh, but Douglas, you sort of said with one reading, which kind of suggests that you have another reading of the book that makes it perhaps not <laughs> Garrick's actual backstory. What what, what, what did yeah, you mean by so that? This is, that's probably a good point at which to explain how the novel is set up and some of the stylistic conceits it uses. Um, there are essentially three plot lines. There's Garrick's youth, including his disastrous dalliance with Palandine, his one true love. There's his time on Deep Space Nine, including his disastrous dalliance with Tia Ramara, a resistance fighter turned Darbo girl. And there's Garrick's time on post-war Cardassia, including the old military establishment's disastrous dalliance with fascism, while Garrick tries to establish something new. Now, the... Plot is at least partially structured around letters that Garak is sending to Bashir, and indeed, in one of the um, Deep Space Nine relaunch novels, they mention at one point that Garak is reading a ve that Bashir is reading a very, very, very long letter from Garak, meaning, I suppose, that this is basically a Twitter DM that Garak is sending in book length form, dear Doctor. How are you doing? Here's how I'm doing. Now, if one... Just good good pals. Nothing nothing else to see yes. there. Just good pals. Guys being dudes. Um, five feet apart in the hot tub. Um, and with that in mind, um, if one reads the novel as Garak's letter to Bashir, then it is at least in part contingent upon how Garak is narrating events. And while this is like the closest that we get to an authoritative attempt of what happened to Garrick. It is being told by someone whose defining canonical feat is that he lies about everything. So if you're in any way dissatisfied with some elements of the backstory, and I admit that some elements of the backstory either don't work on their own terms or fit uneasily with what we know of Garrick, then you can just have it be that, like The Wire, this is the story that Garrick is telling this week to illuminate the point that Garrick is trying to make this week. That he's telling the whole story about Palandine, mm -hmm. not so much because it's what strictly happened, but because it's what illuminates what's happening now in Cardassia. Because there is that, uh, that tie between the social forces that ruined Garrick's life in pre-war Cardassia and what's going on with him in post-war Cardassia. But as I said, there's three plot lines, and one of the book's strengths is, I think, that it um, does draw those thematic connections between the three plot lines. But also, I think some of them work better than others. Adam, do you think that some of these plot lines work better than others? 
Um, yeah, I have to say, so I mentioned that actually lets me uh, call up what I said earlier. Um, uh, there's a Star Trek novel called uh, The Final Reflection by Daniel Ford, which uh, we did an entire episode of my other podcast, What Mad Universe About, because uh, as an entryway into talking about uh, Star Trek It's uh, John Ford, isn't it? We were talking, that season we were talking about John M. Ford. Okay, I'll add that back in to make it sound like I know what I'm talking about. Um, but yeah, it's it's um, that is a novel uh, which is sort of set from the Klingon point of view. At a time... Uh, I think just after Wrath of Khan or around the time of Wrath of Khan uh, came out. Um, and it aims to sort of flesh out and, and deal with a lot of the Klingon culture, which does not jibe with the Klingons as we get to know them later in Next Generation. There's, there's a very different culture for the Klingons there. Uh, so it's non-canonical in that sense. Um, but it's actually interesting because these are two of the best Trek novels that I have read. I have read quite a few Trek novels. And both in both cases, um, like in, in the, uh, the Final Reflection, Kirk and the crew are almost not in it at all. Uh, obviously, in this book, uh, it's all about Garrick, who's a character we know and love from the show. Uh, but the rest of the Deep Space Nine cast uh, would not be in it if we weren't getting this third plot line that was set back on Deep Space Nine. Um, just as in the final reflection, there's a, a prologue and an epilogue that is set that is about Kirk reading the novel itself, like getting into the novel. Uh, and you suspect that that's there partly so they say, hey, this is a Star Trek novel with the characters you like. Uh, I, I think they were probably comfortable enough when they did the final reflection to think that yeah, Trek fans will read this because it says Star Trek on the cover, and they will be willing to make the leap to not having a story about Kirk and Spock. They will get that it's an important part of the Star Trek universe, as it were. Um, and I think that's something similar is happening here. Perhaps uh, perhaps it's not the, the best that they devoted as much time as they did to uh, stuff happening in the... I guess this is sometime around season six or seven of Deep Space Nine. I'm not quite sure of the timeline there because uh, it's before the end of Deep yeah, Space Nine, it's I believe. Definitely, it's yeah, definitely ahead. after the end of season six because they mention Jadzia not being there and Garrick yeah. is busy cracking Cardassian codes, which is what he does after the end of season six. Right. I'm not sure yeah. if it's in the gap between season six and seven because I don't remember Cisco being mm -hmm. there. It may be around season seven, episode three, when Ezri helps Garak to crack Cardassian codes, or it may be later in the season as they're building up towards the invasion of Cardassia. But I'm not sure that it, there's a clear textual indicator of when exactly yes. it happens. Uh, yeah, and and uh, I think the invasion of Cardassia is sort of right near endgame of the series too. So that's like probably somewhere within the ten episode run of the final episodes of Deep Space Nine. Uh, I I believe Cisco is in the book for the record. Uh, I think he makes a brief appearance early on. Um, but yeah, and, and uh, I think he does. Uh, he, uh, in fact, I think they jump around a bit. Uh, this is great how we've, we've. But I think he actually jumps around a bit in time because I think at, at one point he mentions uh, training some of the Cardassian resistance people uh, and Damar. He mentions Damar uh, leading the resistance and so on. Um, so I, I think there's actually a bit of back and forth in terms of exactly when the time period is. But most of it is entries from yeah the last run of episodes of Deep Space Nine. Um, and that, so yeah, like I say, that feels a little more redundant than the other bits. Uh, it's not to a distracting degree, um, but it does feel like, oh, well, we got to get Odo in there. We got to get Quark in there. We got to get Dr. Bashir in there, so on and so forth. Um, uh, but, and that's fine as far as it goes, but it was a bit of a distraction from what is going on. What's really interesting is 
to Garrick's backstory, and even more interesting to me is what's going on on Cardassia after the end of Deep Space Nine, because what was very strongly implied at the end of Deep Space Nine, of course, is that Cardassia had been uh, humbled, uh, finally, something, something that probably badly needed to happen. Uh, it had been, uh, you know, the victims of its own hubris and its own weaseliness in siding with the Dominion. Uh, it had now become a, a devastated, uh, if not quite colonized, but certainly exploited culture. And it's, it saw the, it didn't, it didn't, it almost would have been, uh, thinking about it just now, it almost would have been more poetic if the Dominion had, they joined the Dominion and immediately become, uh, you know, a colonized people, uh, which I suppose they actually were. I, 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 sorry, I'm saying that, that they're not. But we see it from the point of view of the Cardassian leadership who are happily throwing in with the Dominion. I'm sure most Cardassians don't feel that way and that they are, in fact, colonized. So it, it is, it, you know, it ends up, effectively, it's supposed to be like, this is what you did to Bajor, and now it's happened to you. That, that's clearly the intent of what happens at the end of uh, Deep Space Nine. And um, it, so it's about rebuilding from the wreckage. And the implication, furthermore, is that someone like Garrick, who we know is, despite for all his faults, we know he's basically a good guy, and he will probably help launch Cardassian, Cardassia on a new path. Uh, and in fact, there's, there's a whole implied arc that can happen after that, because Garrick, to a certain degree, is a character who... For all the stuff he dislikes about Cardassia and Cardassia's leadership and Gul Dukat, um, he he's still eminently loyal to Cardassia. That's a big thing. Uh, he's the guy who is takes the side of, oh, well, wh what Cardassia is doing is great when he's discussing stuff with Bashir. And Bashir says, well, your authoritarian dictatorship is not a great... Oh, well, it actually is good because... Dot, dot, dot. And you can tell Garrick doesn't really believe some of the stuff he's saying at that point, but he has to uh, he has to stick it up for the home, home team, basically. Um, now that Cardassia is what it is, it's been seriously humbled, uh, he can step in and say well, now I can sort of grow as a person and I don't have any real loyalties left anymore and we'll see where we're going. And it's interesting that you see this because he's confronted with, uh, sorry, I'm doing all the talking, but he's confronted with uh, the idea of a burgeoning democracy movement in Cardassia, which is a crazy weird idea, even to Garrick, who lived among humans in the Federation for years. Uh, he's, he has kind of a slightly contemptuous attitude towards the idea of democracy. Although he he's maybe he, part of him seems to think it's a good idea, uh, but he, he he gets the attitude of like I don't know if this is gonna work, guys. But it would it would be good. But will it work? But will it work? I mean, that's that. Would you say that's your reading on it, Doug, as well? Well, it's hard to say how I would respond to that because for the benefit of our listeners, I note that this is around the point where my audio recording software completely stopped working and we lost my half of the conversation. So I'm trying to reconstruct what I actually said in response to you, Adam, based upon my notes from the next day. On one hand, the fact that I'm recording this in this way reinforces the novel's themes of multiple shifting timeframes and points of view, and points to the illusory nature of truth. Nothing is really real, and we're all just trying to reconstruct a lost past based upon what we remember in retrospect based on future stimuli. This reinforces my point before that Garrick's recounting of his backstory might just be how he remembers it in light of conditions in post-war Cardassia, rather than what strictly happened. But, in another, more accurate sense, the fact that I'm doing this reinforces that this episode of the Mirror Universe podcast was cursed. We are defying the will of God and man in trying to produce it, and we have 
withstood impossible obstacles trying to bring it to you. But all that aside, I think you, Adam, asked why the Tia Romara plot, that being that which takes place during the Deep Space Nine, the series, is in the novel. In part, as you've said, it's to introduce the classic Deep Space Nine characters, to reinforce that this is, in some meaningful sense, a Deep Space Nine novel, rather than just a novel about a classic recurring character from that show. But I think part of why it's also there is that it's the only taste we get of classic Garrick, as it were. Garrick as he was on the TV show. The other plot lines show us Garrick in different states. There's the unformed Garrick of his backstory, Garrick as a child, Garrick as a youth, Garrick as he was before the formative events that made him who we know. And the plotline on post-war Cardassia is Garrick as a man who has been profoundly traumatised and reshaped by the experience of the series itself. For readers who are looking to this book because they want to experience the classic character as we saw him on TV, his interactions with Tia Ramara, filled with lies and innuendo and sowing the seeds of doubt, are really the only attempt to evoke that character. Furthermore, I think you made a really interesting point that Garrick as a character is a fierce Cardassian nationalist who, is who will staunchly defend some of the verities of essential Cardassian culture. As we discussed in previous weeks, one of the things that I've always loved about Garrick as a character is that he's another example that there are multiple different ways of being Cardassian. He's a fierce patriot, but he can, over time, embrace the flaws in Cardassian culture and he's no love of the Cardassian government. Just like there are multiple legitimate ways to be a Klingon, or multiple legitimate ways to be a Ferengi on Deep Space Nine, Garrick is no less Cardassian for being an exile from his country. And one of the things that I like about Garrick's plot in contemporary Cardassia is that it reinforces that the Cardassian democracy movement is a Cardassian movement. It's led by Elon Gimor, the son of Tekeni Gimor, the pro-democracy leader who we already saw in the series. It doesn't look like Federation democracy, and it's not imposed from the top down by the Federation. And the book reinforces that there have always been dissidents within Cardassia itself, from Garrick's surrogate father Talan, who flirts with the seditious religious movement, to Palandine, who openly questions the patriarchal and repressive system even as she marries into it. But one thing that troubled me a bit on rereading the novel was how much Garrick is exposed to those ideas from a very early age. He's never a pure Cardassian nationalist, but instead someone who had those seeds of doubt about the system from an early stage. He certainly doesn't accept Talan and Palandine's ideas, nor the Herbitian dissident religious movement, but nor is he a pure tool of the system. He's always someone who has at least been curious about other modes of government and societal organisation. That definitely makes for a more interesting story. But it sits somewhat at odds with some of the stances that Garrick takes during the series itself, and with his apparent growth during the series itself. I really love the Garrick that we get in this book, but it might have been more consistent with what we see on the screen, of who Garrick used to be, for Garrick's backstory to have been as a fanatical absolutist goon, someone who sincerely and wholeheartedly believes in the Obsidian Order and in Cardassian values, rather than someone who has at least flirted with dissent throughout his life. But I have a larger complaint about the backstory plot in general. For all the ambition of the rest of the book, 
It's a relatively conventional and even at points cliched plot of Garrick's conflict between love and duty, which ultimately brings him down. It's illuminating, and it contains some great characterization. I love the characters in that backstory plot. But in terms of its structure and its overall arc, it doesn't really reinvent the wheel. I'll, it's, I think, the scenes on post-war Cardassia, which are definitely the highlight of the book. Seeing what is left of Cardassia and the citizens reckoning with what their fascist totalitarian system has reduced them to. That brings us, I think, to the question of what works and what doesn't about Andy Robinson's writing style. What did you think of that? Well, I definitely, that was, ex that was exactly what I wanted to get into. Um, but I just want to quickly respond to a couple points you made. Um, it's actually funny that you said that, uh, because I was literally just in a conversation with uh, some pals about uh, the new Star, Star Wars show, Andor. I don't know if you've had a chance to see it or if you're interested in seeing it. Um, Look, I've heard a lot of good things about Andor, yeah. but it's 12 hours long, and it's incredibly <laughs> difficult to find the time. And I am so old now, and my bones always hurt, and it's just so much effort to watch a new TV series, when I have so much else I could be doing and complaining about. <laughs> Watching TV, so yeah, I gotta roll that boulder up the roll. No, I completely understand. I'm not, I'm not uh, gonna... Well, I, I, it is, but it is remarkable, because it's true, I think there's been... A le level of disinterest for me for every Star Wars thing done since 1983. As much as I might have been excited going into it, uh, you know, they got me with Lucas is making more movies, and then they got me with oh, now there's going to be more Star Wars by Disney and not Lucas, and then now it's going to be a TV show. And there's been moments of interest, but it's it's a lot of it has been just maintaining the brand. Uh, anyway, don't want to get too much into this. Uh, the reason I bring up Andor, it's it's very very good, and um, it gel delves a lot into sort of. Uh, it's continuing Rogue One, and it's about all this stuff that, uh, how the Empire actually worked, which we don't see a lot of, and how it was this oppressive force, and how uh, the rebellion grew, and how and was fought and fought against it. Um, but um, one the the thing that everyone immediately took to is the villain, uh, whose name I can't even remember, which I think is very fitting because he is literally uh, the absolute face of bureaucracy, the bad guy in this. He's not even an technically an imperial uh guy he works for a company which itself is contracting for the empire and he's the he's the security for this corporation that does work for the empire uh there's so much bureaucracy that he's already dealing like that he's ensconced in and this sounds like the least interesting thing you could possibly imagine for a star wars show and yet it is fascinating because this character is the one person we've ever met in star wars who seems to actually believe in the empire and think that, that what's going on is what needs to be done every time we see the empire in star wars it is uh, either something people just, oh, it's there and I got to deal with it, and it's, there's no going away with it. Or at the upper levels, it's people who are, uh, oh, I can use this to get more power. How can I gain more power? So nobody's like, I like the Empire. It's great. This is the guy who thinks the Empire is great and needs to be consistent. He's the middle management guy who is absolutely a true believer in the Empire. It's not even clear what he thinks those ideals are, but he believes that it exists as it has to exist. And he deals with corruption, and he deals with incompetence, maybe a bit lower down the, the, the levels. And he's, But he is a cop to the bone, and I don't mean that as a compliment. Uh, but he nevertheless believes in the empire and the show cannot end with this guy going i was right to do what i did he is definitely going to be a guy who is going to get 
he's already to a certain extent come face to face with the badness of the empire and how it really doesn't work the way he would like it to work as much as he is devoted to it uh so that really calls to mind what they did with garrick in a real sense now garrick is maybe a few steps away from this guy uh because he already knows by virtue of the fact that he's been exiled to deep space nine that it is not uh, a real uh that, that there's something terribly wrong with the cardassian empire even if he would never ever admit it his work the guy he hates more than anyone else is one of the most powerful people and as the show goes on basically the one person in charge of the cardassian empire so there must have been a wrong turn somewhere along for that that to have happened but he's still devoted to the empire and i love that storyline of someone who is devoted to something that doesn't live up to its own ideals and it ends up becoming adversarial to him simply because you're not as good as really, I am about enforcing the system that I believe in, even though you are supposed to be the ones in charge of the system. Uh, there's definitely a, a dose of that in... Okay. Uh, that definitely works for me, and that definitely sells me on watching <laughs> Andor. As a lawyer, that cuts very deep. Uh, that's my story. Um, I am always, always an easy mark for stories about people realising that the system in which they are invested does not live up to their ideals. I loved it with Kira and the Dominion in the first episodes of DS9 Season 6 with her realising she's become a, a collaborator. I loved it with Ezri telling Worf that he's the best Klingon amidst the worst Klingons. And that, more than anything, makes me want to check out And Andor. that is... No, that's no, that's dead on. And, and I mean, that is, in fact, a consistent thread in Star Trek and, in fact, and Deep Space Nine especially. As you say, Worf is the best Klingon precisely because he was raised outside the Klingon Empire and didn't have to deal with the messy reality of the Klingon Empire. In a sense, Quark is the best Ferengi. By the end of the show, he's the one saying, what are we doing? We're losing our old values, even though those values are horrible to anyone else their greed and cowardice basically and there it's like and and misogyny and all this other stuff and he's like now they're turning into a much better group and it's a horrible betrayal of everything quark believes in deep down it's hard to believe think of quark as a guy who believes in anything but then you realize he was really committed to these principles of being a greedy corrupt jerk <laughs> and uh you know that's how it that's affecting him and that's been a consistent thing so you could argue you see a trace of it in uh, enterprise with the vulcans as well uh the idea that the real vulcans are like the surak followers who are uh hated by um uh by the the, the then in charge vulcan uh vulcan uh government they're they're seeking them out and, and hunting them down Anyway, so that that is a that is a very interesting idea to all that. So that ties back to what you asked me about um, Andrew Robinson's writer uh, writing, and um, you, as you say, the um, the Palandine um, uh, storyline. I agree, it's not the most bracingly original uh, thing in terms of character dynamics. Um, here's where I think it's significant that this was written by an actor, and you have to imagine this played into. My understanding is that a lot of actors work up a big... Ba well, of course, most actors work up a backstory for their characters if they're going to be playing it for any length of time. They have some idea... They may have these ideas of stuff that's happened to them that never makes it into the onto the screen or onto the stage uh, in terms of the dialogue. Uh, so I have to imagine this is something Andrew Robinson kind of dreamed up going going on in in, in uh, Garrick's backstory. I think the significance of the Palandine plot is that she is, in her own way, manipulative and shifty and backstabby, just as Garrick is, and he loves her for it. <laughs> because that is, on a thematic level, that is who Garrick is, and that's what he's drawn to, uh, and that sort of reflects his personal journey of 
hey, I kind of want to be like that. <laughs> I want to be a, 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 a shifty, uh, a, someone who gets what they want, no matter what it takes, even if it breaks my personal heart. I can respect her for doing that, basically. Uh, and of course, he's a, not only a member of this empire, but he's a spy. So he is absolutely the kind of person who would be drawn to that, uh, which I thought was that. So, so as an actual story, it may not be the most compellingly original thing, but I think it's a very deft uh, interweaving of... Uh, who Garrick is as a character. And I think the whole series, ref uh, the whole novel reflects that. It's him, it's very much coming from Andrew Robinson having a very good handle on who the character is, even if that's not realized the way a writer might with more lofty themes. Although I have to say, I am impressed at how many, there are some interesting themes here and, and some good ideas that go beyond just the characterizations. It is ideas about, you know, how it, how it is like in an Imperial Corps and um, how... Um, um, I, I, honestly, I was impressed that how well Andrew Robinson could write Star Trek stuff, like do some world building, uh, which is, again, we have all the basics laid out there. So it's just a case of it's an oppressive imperial uh, scenario. But, uh, you know, he comes up with Star Trek names that sound like Star Trek names. And he comes up with uh, ideas for how the Cardassian Empire would function. And, and the ideas of, as you say, colonization, because this uh, religious... Uh, group uh did exist as something that was quashed by the cardassians uh at one point um and they they represent sort of an i guess indigenous group that uh that shows that there's still humanity as it were within the cardassian system as badly beat down as it's been uh so there's there's a real understanding of storytelling just beyond i can write a good character which which is very impressive to me so what, what do you like about this douglas what what's so great about all so this? once again for the benefit of our listeners this segment was recorded the day after what adam just said in an attempt to reconstruct what i originally said to him yesterday but fortunately, I found that pretty easy because Adam asked me to say what I loved about Andy Robinson's writing style. And I could have said that 10 years from now or underwater or in any context whatsoever, because I love practically everything about this novel. I'm so glad that you bring up the similarities between Palandine as we see her in the novel and Garrick as we saw him on the show. Because for all that I have some complaints that the Palandine plot isn't groundbreaking in terms of storytelling, I did really love Palandine as a character. She's really well written and her charisma really shines through and you can see why Garrick falls for her and ultimately sacrifices everything for her. And I'd never picked up on this until you mentioned Adam, but part of why Garrick likes her and part of why I liked her so much may be because she's so evocative of the later Garrick, who is my favourite Star Trek character of all time. She leaves an impression. And I'm really glad you addressed how good Andy Robinson is at writing Star Trek, because I think that, aside from the world-building aspects that you've noted, he is really good at evoking the voices of the different Deep Space Nine characters. His Odo sounds like Odo. His Quark sounds like Quark. His Kira sounds like Kira. But beyond the fact that this is just really good Star Trek, I love this novel's ambition. Some Star Trek novels feel like thin attempts to write forgettable episodes of the TV series. But this could only have worked as a novel. It uses recurring motifs and themes and illusions. It's not just merchandise. It takes big, ambitious, thematic swings, trying to tell a great epic about forbidden love and totalitarian society and masculinity and forgiveness, and trying to evoke life in a profoundly alien culture. I admire its ambition, and I admire that it mostly achieves those ambitions. 
I love the novel's little set pieces, those little side plots or segments. I love the sequences of Mamaran and how horrible and hostile the school seems. I love the little self-contained spy stories on Toven Three and Romulus, which play out like little self-contained dramas in their own right. But most of all, I think my favourite thing about the novel is its characterization of the people around Garrick on Cardassia, especially Garrick's relationships with Tane, Mila and Tolan. Tane is perfectly written and works so well with what we see on screen. Even though the TV series itself never explicitly says that Mila is Garrick's mother, that also works perfectly with the relationship that we see in the book, of constant reserve and meaningful silences and duties. Those sequences with those characters in the past aren't just consistent with what we have from the TV show, but they enhance it and they give deeper meaning and context to it. I, as much as I complained that the Garrick in, that we see in the backstory as full of doubt and exposure to democratic ideals seems at odds with what some of what Garrick says on the show about his approach to Cardassian culture. I do think it works with, with what we see on the show in giving a deeper meaning to it, because as we know, Garrick lies about everything. That said, there are some elements of the writing that don't quite work for me. Oddly enough, sometimes it's hard to imagine Garrick saying some of Garrick's lines. That is, sometimes Garrick's dialogue in the novel sounds too much like Andy Robinson's own authorial voice, rather than the character as written on TV. It's definitely Garrick as interpreted by Andy Robinson, which isn't necessarily 100% the same as Garrick as interpreted by Ira Stephen Bear. And I'm not sure that Andy Robinson nails Bashir's dialogue either in some of the dialogue between Garrick and Bashir in the novel. Adam, what, if anything, didn't work about Andy Robinson's writing style for you? Um, I, I, well, I already mentioned, as we say, there's that extra, there's the third lev level of interweaving plots I'm not sure was strongly necessary. Um, I do think, um, I was a little surprised that they didn't do more with, and I'm forgetting the character's real name, but Eight Lubak, as he's known in uh, Baron, uh, because... Pythoslock. I'm sorry? Pythoslock, yes, right. Right. And uh, so, I mean, he's set up very significantly as Garrick, in a sense, his only friend, kind of his rival, because everyone's rivals at this place. Uh, you know, this is Cardassian Hogwarts, where you stab yourself in the back to get up to the front. I shouldn't call it Cardassian Hogwarts. There's many be better examples than that. Uh, but it's the uh, the spy school. Well, first the military school, then he gets uh, reassigned to do some espionage work. And the one person, bo uh, they're assigned names, which they're they're never allowed, which is a nice touch, as again, it's a very uh, oppressive authoritarian regime. They take away your name to train you in the military. Um, and, um, and in fact, his ranking being 10 is because he's considered very low ranking and not important uh same with eight garrick is 10 lubak uh his uh his friend is eight lubak they're they're and but of course the fact that they are so overlooked is exactly what turns out to be something that makes them ideal for espionage work uh and eight lubak you know is going to figure in later and in fa indeed he does he ends up becoming the head of the obsidian order um and uh i was really surprised though he only sort of um briefly appears uh especially in the present day stuff i thought maybe that was what they were like palandine shows up in the quote present day by which i mean post uh dis destruction uh of cardassia uh and eight lubak sort of appears apithus shows up like fleetingly um 
in the final and it's kind of a goodbye to all that it's it's a it's again it's it's symbolic of garrick's i'm leaving behind the man who i was i'm not that person anymore um and, but I think I feel like they could have done a lot more with that character. I think that actually was setting up a real. I mean, an Abrantane kind of fills the role of shadowy puppet master of, and he's on the show and he plays a significant role in the show. And we know he's a big part of Garrick's backstory. So of course they have to make him a big thing. But I like the idea that there's this other guy out there who was Garrick's friend and who's now leading the Obsidian Order, and we don't really know what they represent anymore. And he represents a part of his life that. Uh, Garrick is maybe growing beyond now that Cardassia's been destroyed and everything's become turmoil. Um, I, and yeah, I I, um, I was going to say I'm not sure he explores the post-Cardassian stuff as thoroughly as he could, but actually he suggests it really well. So I think that's all you really need is that it was suggested really well. Yeah, I don't, I don't have any like really heavy criticisms. Uh, I guess maybe there's a little bit emphasis on the backstory. And the mere fact that it is a backstory, as I said, is maybe a problem. Uh, but although, as, as you say, um, you could also read it as um, if you don't want to read it as like duplicitousness and a possible backstory, uh, you could also read it as um, Garrick is now, now everything's changed. Cardassia's changed. Cardassia was a huge part of who Garrick was and Cardassia is completely different now. So now he's maybe a different person and he's willing to actually come clean about his past. I suppose that actually works as a, as a rationale for what's going on. Um, but yeah, these are pretty minor criticisms, I would say. Uh, based on what that so then that then the biggest criticism is probably something that i know you've got down that we want to talk about which is the uh garrick's queerness which i think is really heavily filtered out so I th i'll let i'll toss it back to you because i know this is something we're gonna talk so about. i'm really glad that you brought up pythus lock or eight lubach because that actually directly ties into that next question of how the novel addresses garrick's sexual identity so in the 20 years since deep space nine entered Garrick's sexual identity and ambiguity has become central to online debate and discussion around this character. It's even key to how we've discussed him on this podcast in the past, and it's certainly key to how he's featured in Ira Stephen Bear's documentary, What We Leave Behind. Um, but Pythus Locke's character is the one allusion to that in the novel, to Garrick being potentially attracted to a man. Because at one point Garrick mentions in his internal monologue that he was attracted to Locke, or H. Lubach in Bamaran. Now, in part, the fact that this gets such minor coverage may be about the difference between how Garrick was understood, both by Andy Robinson and by Trek fandom as a whole 20 years ago, and how subsequent discussion and critique of the character has evolved in the decades since then, that Garrick's sexual identity or orientation was simply not seen by Robinson as being a particularly significant part of the character. But one reading of this being downplayed and of the role that Pythus Locke plays in the novel as a whole, is that this is deliberate. Pythus has been reduced to a shadow or a shell of what he once was in the aftermath of the war. He's bitter, he's scarred, he's flirting with this resurgent fascist movement. And any prospect of a relationship between him and Garrick, whether romantic or otherwise, has been snuffed out by the totalitarian society that they grew up in, and by Cardassia's disastrous alliance with the Dominion. On that view, the minor role played by Garrick's sexuality as embodied by Pythus is deliberate and not an oversight, because Garrick has never been able to freely express that part of himself. And now, in the aftermath of the war, now that his life and that part of his life is in ruins, that possibility or that part of his life has been destroyed. All that he and Pythus can share in the aftermath of the war is one or two scenes together 
contemplating not what they could build, but ultimately just reflecting on the tragedy of what could have been. Now, I'm not sure that that's necessarily what Andy Robinson intended by it, but I think that is definitely a reading of it that is open. And more than any novel in the Star Trek range, I think that this is one that is open to multiple different interpretations and which the reader is free to make what they like of what happens. After all, as we have repeatedly said, truth is in the eye of the beholder. After all, I'm not even sure if this is what I said yesterday, so who can say for sure what is true and what's not? Back to you, Adam. Uh, yeah, I, I I have to admit I missed the part where he said uh, like clearly Eight Lubak was there to represent that side of Garrick. Uh, as I rec- I mean the very first scene of Garrick in Deep Space Nine I think it's the third or fourth episode when he shows up, um, and uh, might even be the second episode actually. It's very clearly played with a gay subtext between him and Bashir, and that was consistent for many years over the course of the show. Um, and that's got to have been an actorly choice, <laughs> obviously, to start with. Uh, po- I mean, possibly the writers were in on it as well, and it's television in 1993 was a little more cautious about this stuff, especially in uh, the science fiction genre community. They didn't want to, <laughs> they didn't always want to foreground that, even as Star Trek was always, you know, tr- even though literally a year later they were doing what was obviously a, a, a queer subplot with Jezia and her ex, uh, her ex, tr- her Trill ex. Um, but, um, there was a, um, uh, yeah, I mean, so, like, given that it must have come so heavily from Andrew Robinson, it's a little bit disappointing, I think, that he didn't uh, didn't do more with it, other than very subtle illusion. And the thing is, on a show, you, you, portray, you can subtly reference something more effectively than you can in prose, necessarily. But, I, I, I mean, again, it is there. Uh, I didn't miss, I didn't actually catch the bit, as you say, where he said, I'm attracted to him. I, I missed that. It was... Is that what you said happened? So or? in the Bamaran sequence, it happens like this. Garrick is describing each of the members of his unit, the Lubak unit, and he mentions that one of the other members of his unit, I think five Lubak, was attracted to eight Lubak. And then he says, as indeed was I. Now, you could read that as being purely attracted to eight's charisma and personality. But I don't think it's even necessarily subtext to read that in a sexual or romantic way. I think it's practically text to read it as attraction in a deeper sense. And certainly that's consistent with what we see of Garrick in the show, that he's not someone who is solely attracted to women. Huh. Well, that's interesting. So, yeah, I mean, I was looking through the book wanting to see if there was going to be that and given that so i completely overlooked that so anyway i guess uh i guess i have to uh, rescind some of my criticism then that it is in there um and of course i mean Ger- let's be clear here garrick is clearly bisexual as far as that goes um and it does make sense that he would be very oppressed about it because again we don't know uh, we don't have any explicit feeling on how cardassians feel about lgbtq things but given that they are basically fascists that they talk about the importance of the family uh at certain times uh especially in this book but it's mentioned by gold like he's a he's seen as reliable he's a family man he loses his family that's seen as shaming and so forth like i mean you could you can pro you can connect the dots pretty easily right there uh that he they, they would probably not be very welcome uh if he was uh, openly uh openly uh bisexual or, or queer um 
So that's uh, that's fair enough as far as it goes. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's uh, I, I guess I have to. I guess reading it, I was a little disappointing. But I guess it's it's a mistake to look for that in a mass market uh, spinoff of a popular franchise. As much as that franchise has been progressive and and the spinoffs have been interesting, I think I guess maybe that's uh, I, I was asking too much of it in that regard. Um, I did also want to mention. Um, just the 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 I, as I said at the beginning, the the idea of rebuilding after uh, after the destruction of Cardassia is interesting in that regard. And again, he he evokes a lot without having to say a lot, which is very effective. Um, because um, I can't remember who it was. Somebody has been talking uh, very interestingly. I might have even excuse me. I might have even mentioned it in a previous episode. There's a book called um, A Paradise Built in Hell, uh, which is about. Um, uh, the way that disasters create opportunities, as it were, uh, not opportunities aren't the right, isn't the right word. Uh, d the potential for growth comes out of disaster. It's not to say disasters are good and you should bring them on, uh, but it is an idea that's been floated a bit. You actually see it in um, Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol and in M. Night Shyamalan's uh, story uh, or movie um, Unbreakable, which he basically stole from doom patrol uh the idea that somebody uh which is the villain is actually causing disasters because they believe a hero will rise out of those disasters uh that is actually uh that's sort of the more broadly societal idea that um the the novel uh rebecca uh forget the author's name um that that's something she deals with the idea that yes of course it's horrible when there's a disaster but it's a chance to sort of reset society do a, a hard reset of society uh, and often what evolves out of that you'll see that the, the big problems that come from disaster aren't um you know uh people running havoc in the in the streets and and burning things down and humanity savagery unleashed i mean that does happen uh, but the, it's been somewhat exaggerated the degree to which that does happen. In fact, what often happens when uh, there's a some kind of disaster, a collapse, or or a war, or things like that, and and suddenly all the guardrails of society are off. Uh, what's often happened is that communities start to come together in ways that they weren't able to under uh, even a well-meaning government, let alone an authoritarian one. Uh, suddenly you start to see people coming together and sharing food and looking after each other. Uh, the big example that they get into um, is um, the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, in which um, it, far from like roving gangs looting the populace, uh, there was actually quite a lot of mutual aid and people looking after their neighbors and uh, restaurants giving away free food. And uh, suddenly all the rules were suspended and that gave people a chance to be better more than it did to be worse of course there were there were some people running riot but society actually came together rather much more effectively than you would expect in that situation and the problems and the deaths that came out of it happened when someone sent in the army to start uh <laughs> to start uh uh shooting looter against quote looters uh who were not there in as is as much evidence as you would expect and in fact there was there were a couple of commanders who were absolutely like well we got to get everyone under the heel and it, it it went from well is it really that there's out of control chaos in this place or is it that you want to get the people themselves under the heel uh and that's sort of how it how it how it felt uh, based on their description at least uh, and that's something i think that is very well portrayed in this novel this idea that now that cardassian has has fallen and don't get me wrong uh in the wake of disaster there's the opportunity for things to get much worse that's always something that's a possibility uh and that's exactly what we see here we see the potential of cardassia rebuilding under 
fascism, although Cardassia was already fascist, so it's hard to say if it would get much worse. But um, uh, hilariously, he brings in the character of Gol Madred, uh, who is the character who was played uh, by uh, Mark Alemo, who went on to play Gol Dukat. And he's the, the character uh, who we see... Uh, um, uh, he, who, the first Cardassian we ever saw in Next Generation in the, uh, the episode The Wounded uh, is Gul Madred, played by Mark Alamo. Well, actually, um, Mark Alamo played Gul Maset on Next Generation. Gul Maset does show oh. up in the later DS9 relaunch novels as a fairly decent guy who's a bit embarrassed about his crazy cousin Scrain. But the guy in this novel is the one from Chain of Command. Oh, that's who Madrid is. Okay, I knew he'd showed up on Next Generation. Okay, that that's okay. Yeah, Madrid is David Warner's character from Chain of Command with the Five Lights. It's definitely confusing because their names are so similar, and they mention that yeah. Madrid's career has been sidelined because of the Picard incident, which actually does work with both of them. And I think Gal Madrid actually works really well as the face of the new Cardassian fascism, which is how he's worked in this novel. Because what we've seen of Madrid is that he is basically just pure yeah. evil. He's a sadistic torturer. He's an interesting contrast to Descartes in that way, because whereas Descartes is a self-interested climber who is willing to throw in with anyone and anything for the sake of his own career, Madrid is inflicting torture not just for personal advancement or because it's in his interest yeah. to do well, so, but for its own sake. Indeed, in Chain of yeah, Command... I, I, excuse me, I have to correct you. We all know Gold Ducat was not an evil man. <laughs> uh, that, <laughs> but but no, yeah, you're right. I mean, no, absolutely. The the thing about Ducat is that as much as he wouldn't ever admit it, and you wouldn't even frame it this way, uh, um, Ducat was a bit of an agent of chaos. He was always looking out for himself, uh, but he also had his own personal principles that he believed in very strongly. Uh, whereas Madrid, uh, and pour one out for David Warner, who played Madrid on the show, uh, excellently. Um, uh, the he. Um, uh, he, he definitely feels like someone who is enjoying the chance to be a brutal authoritarian in a way that maybe no, even as, as authoritarian as Cardassia is, he's the only one where you're like, this guy is a sadist and he's enjoying it. <laughs> the others are doing their jobs or, or striving for personal, uh, yeah. Well, sorry, what were you going to say? Well, I think it's an important distinction that you've made, that whereas Ducat is constantly looking out for himself, Madrid is Madrid is this completely humorless, impersonal agent of the system. He is the iron glove around the iron fist. There's no element of yeah. softening. Though it has to be said, one of the features of fascism that, uh, if you study it and, and learn about it, is that it attracts people who are authoritarians because it's to their personal profit. Uh, there's often, uh, you know, again, the, the upper level is tends to be people who are don't have any ideology other than what does best for me it's it's what you it's why we we tend to contrast the idea of uh you know a, a sneaky uh stab you in the back kind of guy look out for himself roguish type versus an authoritarian type but the fact of the matter is a lot of authoritarian systems come from roguish unscrupulous people coming to power and going well everyone else can fall into line i can continue to be a rogue while sitting on a golden throne on a, a footstool of human skulls right <laughs> so and that's what we see here. So, but yeah, Cardassia now gets the opportunity to become uh, democracy, which uh, would never have happened if it hadn't been smashed to bits by the by the Dominion. And I think I think that was very well. And and it's 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 significant. I think that Garrick is not all in on this plan right from the beginning. He hasn't come out of this as like I am gung ho for the Federation now, drinking root beer and all that. Uh, you know, I am 
I'm still a little bit. I, what my first priority is: what am I going to do with Cardassia? I'm in shell shock from what happened to Cardassia. I don't know what's actually best for Cardassia anymore. If there are actually people, Cardassians rising up and they believe in in democracy at the end, by the end, I'd say he goes. Maybe that can work, but that's what it takes to convince him, and I like that. Well, like I said earlier, or maybe as I said for the first time here, because I don't know where I actually said this. One of the things I like about this novel is that Cardassia's democracy movement does emerge from Cardassian conditions. It's being led by a long-time Cardassian democracy activist, and it does have to reckon with Cardassia's fascist history and local opposition. The fascist party led by Madrid plays an important role in the local elections and offers a meaningful local critique to democracy. Democracy has to choose between democracy and authoritarianism on their own terms, not because that's what's being imposed by the Federation. And what I really like about what you said about Cardassia rebuilding and finding something amidst the rubble is that's literally what Garrick is doing. He is repurposing and rebuilding the ruins of Tain's house as a memorial or a shrine, using the remains of the past to create something beautiful in their own terms. He's not building something with no connection to the old Cardassia or creating some Federation root beer style atrocity. He is explicitly using the remains of the past to create something that is at once Cardassian and yet which marks a point of departure from the past. Like you said before, disaster is not an end, but art and culture can arise from devastation in that way. And the fact that he's doing so as a gardener harkens back to his real father. Actually, that reminds me of a potential criticism. And again, I, I, this is superficial, uh, but uh, it, it does. The gardening motif works beautifully in this uh, context, in this particular novel. I would argue that it would have been maybe better served for the character as we know him if it had been tailoring instead of gardening, because that is something that Garrick is clearly passionate about for realsies. Even if you took everything else away from him, he would be a tailor. And this kind of has his first love be gardening, which, as you say, fits very well with the idea of rebuilding Cardassia. Um, But there are ways in which they could have... Hey, I mean... uh, um, uh, what, who's the spy novelist? Uh, John Le Carre wrote uh, *The Tailor of Panama*, and he used Taylor Taylor as a metaphor for spycraft. So you know it can be done. And in fact, I even wonder if that was a bit of an inspiration for Garrick. Now that I think about it, <laughs> it oh, was. it must have been. Yeah, uh, I don't know for sure if it was direct inspiration, but they work so well together that there must have been some connection. And it's exactly the sort of thing that Iris David Bear would have done. Um, But I actually love the emphasis on gardening in this novel because it works so well in terms of Garrick's two fathers, his awful biological father, Tain, who ruins his life, and his surrogate real father, Talan, who was his exposure to the ideals of democracy and pluralism that are ultimately going to be what rebuilds Cardassia. And his embrace of gardening after the war and of Talan's apparent heterodoxy and his interest in Habitian culture is a rejection of Tain's legacy. It's about choosing between the different dreams from my father, as it were, and deliberately positioning himself and rebuilding himself as Talan's son rather than Tane's. Which, in retrospect, I, I think that the exposure towards dissent early in the novel, which I'd previously complained about, works perfectly because previously he'd rejected that in favour of Tane's vision, not being unthinkingly inculcated into it, but choosing to be Tane's son, Whereas in the future, he decisively rejects that legacy and is, as it were, Elam Talan. I guess that actually, 
I mean, absolutely within again within the context of the novel, it's beautifully done. There's no question. Um, it, 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 I, again, it's just sort of a, a thing of maybe deep down he is a, a tailor. He is plain simple Garrick who only wants to just fix everyone's outfits. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean, I guess you could argue that again, since this is now new Garrick being rebooted by the destruction of society he can finally admit that he's always loved gardening and that's something he really cares and passionate about but i think it i, I just i i, I miss the I, I think it would have been very elegant if they'd done it with tailoring because that's something we know about the character and and just you know that's somebody somebody mentioned that like um you know, we talk about survivalists and like if society collapsed, you got to have all your guns. And something somebody said, you know, the thing that will help you survive more than being able to shoot is uh, being able to knit sweaters. And, I, you know, that's something I thought about with Garrick. Again, it's not as overt as gardening, but it is kind of a the, the new world of Cardassia is going to need tailors. It doesn't it sounds silly, but it is 100 percent true. And they could have built on that in that way. Again, I'm kind of rewriting the book. Maybe that's not fair. But it's just that since Garrick as a tailor was something they hammered home so much in this in the show, I feel like they could have used that instead. That's all. But, Honestly, yeah. I'm really glad that you say that, because what Garrick's relationship to gardening in this novel really reminds me of is Gaius Boltar's relationship to farming in the Battlestar Galactica reboot. Um, as we know, at the, <laughs> yeah, at right. the end of Battlestar Galactica, Boltar acknowledges his heritage as a man who grew up on a farming planet, mm -hmm. who does know how to farm, and he's rejected that heritage as part of his rebuilding and rebranding himself. And Garrick's doing the same here. He knows how to garden, he knows how to work the land, but it's only mm -hmm. after the end of the world and amidst devastation that he can embrace that part of himself and cast aside some of the masks that he's traditionally hit behind yeah he is the son of a gardener and he's going to rebuild cardassia by gardening <laughs> yeah that's actually a, that's interesting and given how much of Battlestar galactic came out of uh deep space nine and and voyager but also deep space nine uh that's interesting you, you have to rub your chin a bit and go huh hmm, i wonder if i wonder if uh but yeah I, I mean that's it's broad enough that there's probably there's other characters who do that kind of thing for sure um but that's really interesting anyway um well, there's no wonder that that works so well for me, because that moment at the end of Battlestar Galactica, when Boltard tearfully admits, I know how to farm, is one of my absolute favourite TV moments of all time. Before we conclude, I want to acknowledge that I am extremely grateful to you, Adam, for agreeing to do this and for the incredible work you've done on this episode. I have a very easy job on this podcast. I show up, I talk about Star Trek for an hour, I record it and I send it to you. And this week, I didn't even do half of that because I messed up recording my half. To do this episode, not only did you read a whole novel that you hadn't read before and put up with months of pestering from me about it, but you have managed to piece together from what we said yesterday and what I've said today an actual episode. It must have taken an enormous amount of time and effort. I am always really, really grateful to you for doing the actual hard work to make this podcast possible, but I have never been more grateful than now that you've been able to assemble something, as it were, from the wreckage. Well, it's it's no problem. I mean, you've told me to write a very enjoyable and entertaining novel, and as I said, this is we did an entire episode about it, uh, the Trek for the People episode, which I think is a third or second or third episode that we did um and it was uh, about um you know how people how how of all the major franchises i think star trek has benefited the most from people uh spinning off uh into uh novels and and to a certain extent things like role-playing games and so on um 
that's actually part of where uh, the final reflection came from. The guy st- got his start doing uh, supplementary role-playing uh, material for Star Trek, and it turned into a novel. Um, and it was, uh, which actually then, then, then did feed back into the show. Uh, they did take some of it specifically and use it in the show. So it's it, that's always one of the most interesting aspects to me. And it, it's significant, I think, when you told me to check the, the, the follow-up for this, it was on what's called Memory Beta. For those of you who don't know, Memory Alpha is the Star Trek uh, Wikipedia. Memory Beta is the uh, non-canon Star Trek uh, Wikipedia, which has all the stuff that isn't uh, that might be in, for instance, a spin-off novel, but that might be contradicted by the show, or even if it's not directly contradicted, um, you know, c- wouldn't be considered canon. Uh, so this is this book is Memory Beta material, but uh, as we say, it's so well done, it, it jives really well, and we are starting to see people draw on. Uh, expanded universe as it were star trek material and especially something like lower decks uh you are starting to see people pull from some of the expanded ideas of star trek that when roddenberry was alive and even during the berman era they kind of didn't want to they wanted to pretend none of that was real it was it was it was put aside as something that that did not um that didn't actually play a role in um, in in Star Trek. It was like, no, here are the books, and here are the. It's something that ironically Star Wars then embraced, and now Star Trek is kind of feeding back into saying, well, there's stuff in here we can. There's the online game which I've never played, but I know it feeds in. Anyway, so this is a very uh, it, this is a very worthwhile addition to that canon. Like the fact that Star Trek has generated this in a way that I'm sorry, Star Wars fans, I don't think any of the expanded universe stuff is anywhere near this level compared to the original materials. And it's, uh, you know, it's part of why I think Star Trek has that democratization, even though, of course, this was published by a guy who's literally on the show. But it's it's part of the same current that uh, allowed that to happen, I think. And that's something that I just, that I love about Star Trek. So I'm, I'm really excited to delve into this stuff if you know another uh really interesting book maybe we should look at the james blish stuff or something uh for the spin-offs or... well like i think i said on the yeah. tos episode james blish was how i originally experienced the original series because my high school library had a full set of his novelizations which were apparently considered important to educating teenagers in the year 2005 it wasn't until after i'd read those novelizations that i actually saw the tv episodes for the first time But I think there's two novels that we could cover. One is James Blish's Spock Must Die, which is one of the first Trek novels, which is a great Mm -hmm. two-fisted, pulpy adventure about two Spocks, one of whom is good and one of whom is pure evil. And the other is Una McCormack's The Never-Ending Sacrifice. That tells the story of Mm. Rugal Padar, the young Cardassian raised on Bajor from season two's Cardassians. It shows his life in the years that followed. Mm-hmm. Growing up on Cardassia during the rise and fall of the Datapa Council, the Dominion occupation, and the post-war reconstruction. Oh. I don't think it's as good as a stitch in time, but I think it works really well as a companion piece to this novel. It shows, as it were, what happened on Cardassia in the years leading up to the devastation. And going back to what you said before, colonization mm-hmm. from the ground level. Oh. Okay, you said the f- the never-ending sacrifice, and that's the name of Garrick's favorite novel in the Card- by Cardassian author. So I thought, oh, they actually wrote that. That seems like a bit much. Yeah, I think yeah. actually writing a seven-generation repetitive epic is probably taking it a bit far. Um, part of what I actually really like yeah. about Una McCormack's book is that it is def- definitely firmly based in the position that Cisco was absolutely wrong to send Rugal back to his biological Cardassian father. It's a disastrous choice that ruins his life, and it's reinforced again and again what a bad decision it was. And in the end, the Federation actually issues a formal apology for it. 
I really like that the novel can take that kind of firmly critical position on the TV show, which is normally treated as sort of sacrosanct, and can place what we've already seen in a new light accordingly. I think, and that goes back to one of the things that I most enjoy about A Stitch in Time. It's a really, really good novel in its own right, but it doesn't just function as that. It's a companion piece to the TV series and makes you enjoy Garrick more as a character on the show, that you understand where he's coming from and you understand the additional weight that his dealings with Tane and with Mila have as a result. That every dealing he has with Mila on the show, you now filter through the knowledge that they are in fact mother and son and that they have that deep relationship but are unable to really express what they mean to each other. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's a lot, yeah, there's there's a lot uh, of stuff we could consider with that. But yeah, I do like, I just, I do love that there's all that expanded material as part of Trek and that it was, at least for a while, it was somewhat democratized and it was part of the larger Trek verse and it's we're kind of seeing that with like lower decks almost being a fan uh it's almost a a, a tv adaptation of the kind of fan spin-off stuff that you would see uh from that that era although they they take themselves less seriously obviously um but just a reminder that uh i am on twitter as prankster 36 uh and you can uh check out uh my other podcast what mad universe with uh philip rice and um it's uh it's uh it's on twitter as well as wmu podcast uh where we just talk about the history origins of sci-fi and fantasy more broadly uh and i am also the comics editor at heroeslive.tv where we've got some new material coming up i'm finishing one up right now as we speak uh you can subscribe there and read a lot of cool comics so why not do so but uh yeah i think that's uh that's uh, about all i have left to say so uh shall we wrap it up douglas Live long and prosper, Adam. Yes, uh, and see you on the flip side.